I had to create a list called, it's a private one, Accounts Twitter Doesn't Show Me Anymore. <laughs> it's funny. This is a bit of a digression, but once I was in an Uber and the guy was playing a Spotify list, and I noticed on the list it said music for my ungrateful Uber passengers. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in technology, business, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we get to talk about some of the most interesting stories and trends in the news. This week, my guest is a University of Washington professor whose Twitter account was abruptly suspended last week for reasons that seemed inexplicable at the time. We also get a reality check on generative artificial intelligence. And in the final segment, we hear why the late David Bowie was right all along about the exhilarating and terrifying future in which the rest of us are now living. My guest is Kathy Gill, a tech industry veteran who is an adjunct professor at the University of Washington and Bellevue College, focusing on communications and user experience. Kathy Gill, thank you very much for joining me. Well, it's lovely to be with you, Todd. Kathy, for people who don't know you, how do you describe what you do at the University of Washington and in other roles that you have right now? Well, I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Washington, where I used to teach full-time. Um, I am teaching engineering students technical communication undergraduate engineering students, which is so much fun. And then I also teach a graduate level course in human-centered design and engineering for students who don't have any background in web technologies. That field is so general. It has architects and library science people and tech people. Everybody needs to be able to talk to a developer. So that's what I help them do. Well, I can only imagine, given that focus, that Artificial intelligence and generative AI are huge topics for you in the classroom right now. And I want to talk about that with you on the show. Am I right? You're right. I, I don't think it's as huge as some of the media might make you think, but definitely it's, it's an issue and we talk about it in class. Okay. So we'll get to that a little later on, but you were actually in the news yourself just recently, <laughs> there was a Tech Dirt article. I love Tech Dirt. They really get into it. I think they're one of the best named sites because it's so appropriate. Uh, they get into the nitty gritty of what's going on that explained what was happening to you and your Twitter account when you deigned to tweet a story, to attempt to tweet, I should say, a story from a source as questionable as the Washington Post. Can you tell the story of what happened to you on Twitter when you attempted to do that? So um, you remember last week we had all the information, the leaks on the Discord server and the big interview that the Washington Post did with the teens, right, about who OG was. This is the Pentagon leak, this person who had some security clearance leaking this information publicly in this Discord server that he ran. Right. But, you know, it was it was public, but it was semi-public because there were only two dozen people in that server. In any case, one of the people who had access to that server was a teen whose parents allowed him to talk to the Washington Post. So I wanted to share the story, but I didn't like the headline because the headline just said it was the leaker's friend. So I wrote on top of a screen capture, teen. Mm -hmm. Right. So I added the word teen 
and then I said something about this is really important because we we know, you know, how teen brains are slow to develop. I mean, then the link to the Washington Post, and it was a gift link. And I said, so this is a gift link. And then I had my screen capture, which was, you know, the headline and a picture of a keyboard. And I got the Twitter saying, you know, we couldn't send your tweet. And I am a paying blue person from way, way, way back because I wanted to be able to edit. And I thought, oh, you know, the service is glitchy. It's always glitchy. I get this. Can't send your tweet more times than I can count. So I clicked retry and I got the same message. And then I went into the drafts and opened it up and clicked tweet again. And this time I didn't wait for it to go through its little timeline. I just hit tweet now and it said no. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I don't know what's going on. So I left Twitter, went to do something else, came back half an hour later and saw that my tweet was in my tweet was in jail for sensitive content. And here's how you appeal. So I appealed and I said, look, this is a link to the Washington Post. It's a screen capture of the story headline. And I wrote the word teen. I don't I don't understand. And then I went back and went about my business and I came back a half an hour, an hour later, and discovered I was permanently suspended. <laughs> permanently suspended for Attempting to tweet this screen capture and the link and then appealing it. And you're a member, you're a paying member of their service. What was your reaction? I was like, what is going on? You know, we all know that the bird site is, the the Twitter is on a sinking boat, okay? Hmm. Uh, And it's on a sinking boat because it doesn't have any engineers, and it has a caprice, uh, someone who is, um, uh, I just, I don't want to say anything terribly. Yeah. Well, here's terribly the bad. This is yeah. interesting. I can see you editing yourself before you're talking. This is really fascinating. What's happening right now, Kathy, you don't want to say something that's going to get you permanently banned for real. Wait, I don't want to say something like, well, plus I don't want to call names. I mean, I don't oh, like to call right. names anyway, but it's just so easy to call names when you're talking about Elon Musk. So Elon Musk is erratic here. That's a word that we can use. Elon Musk is erratic and I'm not that high profile. I have almost 8,000 followers. I have been on the service since 2007. I've never been in jail. Um, I have had one tweet get this same treatment though. And I think it was since Elon came on, but I couldn't swear that. But I have had a tweet beheld and marked sensitive content when it was a link to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, some somebody legitimate. So anyway, so I thought, well, okay, fine. Um, I'm going to go to my backup account and see if I can tweet this thing. And I got the same, sorry, we can't tweet right now. What? And then that account got blocked, permanently suspended. And so I started telling people. So I have a third account, right, from when I was a full-time professor. And I went in and changed everything. So my name did not appear. My URL did not appear. There was no easy way to connect it with me. And then I started talking to people like you that actually follow that very small account and say, hi. I'm tweeting over here right now and keeping a low profile because my main profile has been banned. 
Um, and then I went over to Mastodon and said something there too. I, I'm not as active there for a lot of reasons, which we can talk about if you want to. And Mike Mesnick, who I chat with quite frequently, said, tell me more. And so we went into, you know, the private message part of, of Mastodon and I told him and he said, would you mind if I wrote about this? And I said, well, I would love for you to write about this. Thank you very much. His theory was that Musk did not like the story because Glenn Greenwald did not like the story. And he had made some comments apparently on Twitter about that, that hinted at derogatory things. So I gave Mike all my screenshots. So thankfully I'm a screenshot addicted person. So I had a screenshot record of everything that happened and he wrote about it the next day. And within 12 hours, the ban had been lifted. The weird thing was, well, there were many, but one was when I went back in, it said, welcome. Like I'd <laughs> never been on Twitter before. Like you had just set up a new account. Here are some accounts you might want to follow. I mean, huh. all of that stuff. So a lot of people on Mastodon said, so is it this your your hint that you should just leave Twitter? And I'm like, well... I've been there a long time. I have many curated lists of topics that I follow to stay current on topics of interest to me. And the discoverability on Twitter is still mostly good and much better than Mastodon. So that's my answer as to why I cared. And plus, I just didn't want my name linked to account Assist permanently suspended. Just to catch people up on this, Mike Masnick is the journalist with TechDirt who wrote the story about your Twitter account being suspended permanently slash temporarily. And of course, Glenn Greenwald was one of those who broke the story of the Edward Snowden leaks years ago and continues to be very active in the realm of investigative journalism. So Kathy, you were just explaining that you find value in Twitter, not just as a communications technique for yourself, but also as a way to absorb information. And it sounds like through your extensive use of Twitter lists, you've actually figured out a way around the algorithm to some extent. You're not just seeing what Twitter wants you to see. You're actually kind of brute forcing it in some ways and saying, hey, I want to see these things. And, and you've found a workaround. I had to create a list called, it's a private one, Accounts Twitter doesn't show me anymore. <laughs> it's funny. This is a bit of a digression, but once I was in an Uber and the guy was playing a Spotify list and I noticed on the list it said music for my ungrateful Uber passengers. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> I told him it was great and I, I asked him if I could subscribe to it, if I could follow it. And he said, sure ungrateful <laughs> jerk. Anyway, so you've kind of figured out something similar with a little bit of a cheeky name to be able to follow what you want to follow on Twitter. Right. And so, I mean, and here's some of the people who I had to put on that list. Kevin Cruz, who is a very high profile historian, um, very knowledgeable about civil war, um, pretty vocal on Twitter and and not in the same sense as, as Heather Cox Richardson in terms of putting current news in context, but, but someone like that. Um, I'm like, why did you suddenly stop showing me his tweets and my following 
list. So um, once I realized an empty wheel, um, Marcy Wheeler, another one that just stopped showing me. So, um, so I created a list so I could see those people. And then I have topics, right? I have Seattle journalists. I have a, a, a COVID epidemiological list. Um, I have a list that I give to, that I used to give to journalism students. So yeah, that's, that's how I use Twitter. So for me, it is still, um, for information consumption, a, a good place because I've curated what I see. Beyond your own personal use and utility that, that you get out of the service, maybe you can put on your professor hat for me here. Where do you see this headed? And what do you take away from this experience about the state of social media and frankly media? You're seeing the blurring of those two lines here. What did you learn from this experience and, and what should people take away from it? So Todd, I think it's bigger than what you just described. Yeah, good. So let me put on not just my professor hat, but my economist hat that yeah. goes from a very much former life. We have our equivalent of the Gilded Age going on right now. And when an individual can lose $40 billion and not blink... Something is wrong with how society has been structured. So for me, it's as big of an issue in showing how capitalism is broken in the United States, how crony capitalism is broken in the United States, as it is this point that you made about the blurring of the lines. The other thing is that in many, many ways, Twitter is an infrastructure. And I think you and I have probably talked about this in the long past. And I have never understood why someone didn't just create a paid version of Twitter. I mean, the blue thing was kind of going there, but I would pay to not see ads. I would pay to say, don't show me any account that has fewer than 100 followers. Don't show me an account where the name is composed of at least five digits. <laughs> so you have, in many ways, the tragedy of the commons, mm. I think, going on here. Everybody can, and so everybody does. Um, but the problem is that everybody can be someone like, you know, some organization like a government, like Russia, like China. So what we have is, well, we have in many ways, Orwell's 1984, mm -hmm. in that we don't know if what we're reading or hearing is true unless we already have a lot of knowledge about the topic. Is there a way out of this? I don't expect you to have the answer necessarily, but do yeah. you have hope? I, depending on the day of the week. <laughs> um and I, I don't, you know, I don't mean to be too flippant here, but I've always considered myself a pragmatic optimist. And I don't know. I mean, getting out of, well, we have to go back and define what this is. So how do we extricate ourselves from a political environment where it is okay to lie? And in fact, in some cases, feels like a badge of honor to lie. That goes 
to people being willing to stand up for core democratic principles. But I don't know what you do when somewhere between 12 and 15% of the population doesn't want to hear any other thing. And and I, I, I get so annoyed at stories that talk about, you know, a third of the Republicans or half of the Democrats as though there were no independents. Mm-hmm. And there are more independents than either of those two groups. So independents, people who do not consider themselves affiliated with either party, need to get socially and civically active. So when we're talking about Twitter, you know, we're talking about a really small percentage of the U.S. population, the global population. It doesn't have nearly the user base of Facebook or TikTok or, you know, anything like that in many ways because it's far more democratic in the traditional sense of anyone can and so anyone will. There's so many, like, systemic issues, and I have said for many, many, many years before I discovered Heather Cox Richardson, as a person who grew up in Georgia, I believe we are on the verge of whatever was 1860. Mm. I am not saying it will result in a physical war, but the tensions in society, economic, social, cultural, seem to me to be uh, recreating themselves, mm. in part because they never disappeared. Right. And then on top of this, we're adding this entirely new layer of artificial intelligence. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm talking this week with Kathy Gill. She is an adjunct professor at the University of Washington, among other roles that she has. I've known her for many years and always enjoyed talking with her about these big picture communications issues. Kathy, you, as you mentioned at the very beginning, are teaching communications to engineering students. I made the assumption that artificial intelligence and generative AI, open AI, what Microsoft is doing in Bing, what open AI is doing with ChatGPT and GPT-4. It's amazing how all of this word salad is just coming completely naturally to me now. I know. Would be a big topic. <laughs> and and it's only really since December. I mean, all those technologies are older than that, but they broke through yeah. in mainstream media in December. Exactly. What types of conversations, what types of issues are you talking about with engineering students as they relate to communications and artificial intelligence? So first... The title of the course is Engineering 231, Introduction to Technical Communication. Technical Communication. That's the tool that we use. This is my perspective of of the course. This is the tool. Communications is the tool that we use to interrogate engineering ethics. Hmm. So the student projects focus on 
ethical conflict, ethical dilemma, stakeholder conflict. So they're using writing, right? They're learning writing. It's a W course, which you know means it is a lot of writing, to learn more about their profession. So the first thing when a student says, I want to write about AI, is I ask them to define it. Because there is no universal agreed upon definition for what it means. I argue that chat GPT is algorithmic conversation. It is not intelligent. So that's the first thing. And what's interesting is that the students, maybe because it's so new, when they write papers or blog posts or do a presentation on anything in this algorithmic intelligence realm, they tend to focus on automation and that's impact on jobs. So I've had papers on universal basic income. They focus a lot, a lot on facial recognition technology and why it's not really ready for prime time, even though it's being used. The heartening thing, the heartening thing, Todd, is that these students are incredibly idealistic. They want to change the world. They write papers about green, clean energy. I've learned about hydrogen and, and the challenges with turning hydrogen into actually a useful way of creating energy. Um, I've learned about small-scale nuclear, not quite in your backyard, but kind of close. Um, I've learned about green cement. So so the, fa- the fascinating thing to me is that their focus is on making society better, which is what you want your engineers to want to do. So as a reporter, especially as a reporter covering this stuff, I am looking for ways to transparently use generative AI in my reporting. Mm. So here's an example for me from the past week. Amazon Prime, there was a report out from an analyst firm saying that Amazon Prime membership growth has plateaued. So I was writing a story about Amazon Prime. And you know, as a journalist, you're going through this process and there are three or four boilerplate graphs that you have to put into a story just to catch people up on what's happened. Mm -hmm. And so I went into ChatGPT and I said, essentially, please summarize based on GeekWire's coverage, the changes over the past decade in Amazon Prime membership prices. As if you were writing on April 18th, 2023. And Kathy, it did a great job for two paragraphs. And then in the third paragraph, it told me with authority that Amazon had raised the price of Prime as of April 18th to 150 some odd dollars, which Amazon had not. Completely fictitious. And so I came back and I said, please do this based on facts, not fiction. And it said, I apologize for the mistake in my response. And then it proceeded to do essentially the same thing again in another form. You've experienced this as well and seen this. Mm -hmm. What are your takeaways about the realities of AI based on what you've seen and experienced yourself? So your anecdote, which mirrors one of a blog post that I wrote for the students, reflects the way mainstream media reported this tool in December. Yeah. If you shift the framing, one, remember that its database ends in like 2021. Right. And then you shift its framing 
to understand in your mind that it is responding in a logical way to answer your question as though you were having a conversation, not as though you were writing a research paper. It helps clear your mind a little bit. The other thing, though, as you just pointed out, you have to actually know the subject (laughs) before you ask some questions so that you can see where it's veered off into hallucination. I got lucky um, (laughs) in my last experiment. So I think, and I think chat GPT-4 is more refined than 3.5. I was not happy with some of the material we were giving students for conducting research. And so I said, okay, I am going to write my directives to the students. What's a reputable source? How do you determine what's a scholarly source? Um, How do you go about research? And so I had gotten a hint of writing good prompts. And um, I can can send it to you later, but I can't remember it exactly. But basically, you tell it what audience you're writing for, what level you want to write at. Do you want it to be reporting? So you kind of give it a a type of writing. Right. This is if you were a reporter, right? Right. And, And then... A very clear statement. Mm. So I iterated it twice and taught it. Remi- well, first, it reminded me of things I know. But second, it, re- it reminded me of things that I was not going to include, but should. Interesting. Yeah, it feels like we are so early in this. It feels like we're interacting with the DOS prompt, you know, back in 1980-something, <laughs> you know what I mean, compared to what yeah. what the graphical user interface will be in the future, whatever that might be the equivalent of. I want to take one more quick break, and when we come back, I want to play a fascinating clip that was circulating this week from none other than the late, great David Bowie that really touches on all of this. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm speaking this week with Kathy Gill. She is a longtime communications pro and an adjunct professor at the University of Washington. Kathy, there was a clip that circulated this week from the BBC archives in which David Bowie, back in 1999, had this to say about frankly, everything <laughs> that we're talking about on this week's show. Absolutely. So I wanted to play I, it here. Because I think that we, uh, at the time, up until at least the mid-70s, really felt that we were still living under the, uh, 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 or in the guise of a, a single and absolute uh, created society where there were known truths and known lies and there was no kind of duplicity or pluralism about the things that we believed in. That started to break down rapidly in the 70s, and the idea of uh, 
uh, a duality in the way that we live. In, in there are always two, three, four, five sides to every question. That this singularity disappeared. And uh, that, I believe, has produced such a medium as the internet, which absolutely establishes and shows us that we are living in total fragmentation. I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. Kathy, how do you react to that? So first, I've always felt that David Boyd was an amazing person. Um, in this case, listening to this interview from 1999, I want to know, where did the man have a crystal ball? He anticipated the alternative truths movement. The one thing, Todd, it, it kept taking me back to was Ender's Game. I, I, mean, I feel like I need to reread the book because there's so much happening today in the you don't know if this person, A, believes what they're saying, or B, is saying truthful things, and the division that Orson Scott Card saw, right, when he when he wrote that, the division in society into seeing the world as black and white, as there were only two views. And it seemed to me that what Bowie was saying is that that's how we saw the world before the 70s. And then we started shattering. We are continuing to shatter. It's just painful. The phrase that he used, exhilarating and terrifying. Yes. I think that sums it up so perfectly. And it would be fascinating to know what David Bowie would have to say about the Fox settlement this week with Dominion <laughs> Systems. <laughs> Not to trivialize it. We can ask chat GPT. <laughs> I think I'm going to do that when we hang up. That's perfect. <laughs> well, Kathy, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your perspective, and I hope we can do it again. I do too, Todd. It was great fun. Kathy Gill is an adjunct professor at the University of Washington and Bellevue College. Follow her on Twitter at K.E. Gill or at Kathy Gill, which was the account that was temporarily suspended, and read her work at wiredpen.com. Kathy told me in a follow-up text, by the way, after we recorded the show, that she has encouraged students this quarter to use ChatGPT to help develop blog headlines. They can use MidJourney to create an image, and she's also shown them how to properly cite their use of AI in each situation. I may need her to teach me that as well. Thanks for listening to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Our show is produced and edited by Kurt Milton, with theme music by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Coming soon, a conversation with one of the pioneers of modern life sciences about AI and the future of scientific wellness. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review GeekWire in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire Podcast. <laughs>